So what uh, you didn't know is a couple bad dad jokes here. The shortest person in the Bible, Nehemiah. Now, I trolled that at the first service. I actually didn't really troll it, but uh, I'm going to say that I did. Uh, but it's not actually Nehemiah. Nehemiah. Um, it's one of Job's friends, right? Bill Dad, the shoe height. Okay, yeah, it's, it's awful. Um, and then for those of you that are motorcycle fans, uh, there was motorcycles in the Old Testament. They heard of uh, Joshua's uh, triumph all over the land. Okay, that, that's how bad it is, right? That's how bad it is. Um, anyway, we're, we're not going to go there anymore, and that was really a terrible waste of time. For those of you who are joining us online, sorry, I apologize. And to you who are present, I apologize. Um, but, we, you know, we're going to look at Acts 19. So if you want to turn to Acts 19, go ahead and do that. Because we're going to go through the whole chapter, and you need to buckle up. Because it's going to be a wild ride. It is so many different, bizarre kind of things going on in that chapter. And it's about the people of the city of Ephesus. And when the gospel comes to the city of Ephesus, really strange things happen and powerful. It's a power, it's a power play is what it comes down to. And the people of Ephesus were really spiritual. They were, they were all over the place. They were into magic and amulets and talismans and, and they just had all this stuff going on. And they had temples and, you know, just, it was just crazy stuff. And, you know, we tend to think that we're, oh, we're better than them. We don't do that stuff. But, you know, in reality, when you think about it, we are a society in America that's very secular, but we're also very spiritual at the same time we are. We, 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 we trust in Jesus, but we believe in jinxes, right? Uh, we we seek God's will, but then we'll go talk to a medium, right? And that's the way Christianity is across America. That's the way we are. We're kind of like the people of Ephesus. So that would be a good thing for us to look at it because we need to learn some things. Um, there's two things that we want to do, in, in, and I try to do this on a weekly basis. Um, one of them is we want to explain the passage. So some of you here have read through Acts 19. You know, you've read through these stories. You're well aware of them. Some of you kind of a vague remember. You've read through them maybe once or you kind of gone through them. Uh, some of you have no idea. You've never read the book of Acts. You've never read Acts 19. So this is going to be all new to you. And actually, you're, you may be new to the Bible. By the way, if you are new to the Bible, sign up for that that uh, walk through the Bible because that'll be a great help. It gives you the, the picture. You know when you do a puzzle and you have the picture that you work off of? That's what walk through the Bible will do for you for the Old Testament. It'll give you the picture so you can fit the pieces in. It's really helpful with that. All right, so that being said, we want to look at the passage and whether you know the Bible well or you don't know it at all, you're in a good place. When you, if you're watching, you're in a good place because I'm going to try to explain it a little bit and then we're going to apply it. Because it's one thing to understand it, it's another thing to apply it. And what I want to do is I want you to have a takeaway. I want you to say, what is my takeaway today that I'm going to bring with me that's going to change me and change my life, change my attitude, whatever. Something is going to change in me because of this interaction with God's Word today. Now, why is that important? 
Let's say that you go into the doctor and he does some tests and he says, you have a heart condition. I'm going to put you on some medication. You're going to need to watch your diet and you're going to need to start exercising. And you need to do it immediately. You have a choice of whether you're going to follow his directions or whether you're just going to do your own thing. I want this to be one of those times where you say, this is what God wants me to do. I'm going to go home and I'm going to do it. All right. So that's where we want to go. Acts 19, let's look at it. And we'll uh, just kind of make some observations. I'm going to kind of go and then stop a little bit here and there. Acts 19, verse 1. If, if you have the chair Bible, it's page 901. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have never, not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the coming one after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized, and in the name of the Lord Jesus, when Paul placed hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they, all, they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 in all. All right, so Paul encounters these, these uh, disciples of John the Baptist. So commentators are debating, were they Christians, were they not Christians? I think the point that you need to understand here is they had gaps because the gospel is rolling out in the book of Acts. We know that if they're, uh, if they're disciples of John the Baptist, that they were there at the Jordan River when John was baptizing. It's very likely that they were baptized by John, a baptism of repentance. They came back to Ephesus. They had heard nothing of, about Jesus uh, or anything uh, about the gospel. And so now they have holes, they have gaps in the understanding of the gospel, the good news. And so just like Apollos had holes and gaps, those were filled. We looked at that a, a week ago. Now, these disciples, whether they're Christians or not, uh, we don't know. But what we do know is by the time that they're done, with, with, when Paul is done with them, they are Christians because they're speaking in tongues. They're demonstrating uh, the Holy Spirit in their lives. Now, notice verse 11, and you might want to underline this. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. Okay? So even Luke is saying, this is extraordinary. This isn't the, this isn't the, the um, day-to-day, this is out of the ordinary. This is extraordinary. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even the handkerchiefs and ap- aprons that touched him were taken to the sick and the illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. So the city of Ephesus was renowned for the magical arts, the people would use, they had scrolls, we're going to see those in a little bit, they had scrolls that contained magical spells, and they believed in the black arts, the magic, they would have amulets, they would, uh, they would uh, have talismans, they would do all of this magic thing, and they were captivated by this magical spiritual essence, okay, that was part of who they were. And uh, it's likely, we use the word handkerchief, uh, <laughs> which is kind of a modern idea. But basically, they were sweat cloths that Paul would wear when he was working in labor, and he was a tent maker. And when he made tents working in the hot sun, he would put a, something over his head uh, to 
quell the heat, maybe was wet. Well, they would grab those and they would touch the sick and the sick would be healed. And so, so, so all the, you know, so there's some really strange things going on here. Um, and like uh, Luke says, uh, God was doing extraordinary miracles through Paul. Now, two things stand out here, and it's really important that we understand this. Um, number one, it doesn't say Paul was doing these. It says that God was doing these things through Paul. So it was the power of God. It wasn't the power of Paul. Now, the people were very into magic, and they were into these, these pieces of cloth and amulets and spells and all this stuff. So what God was doing was he was directing them through the regular channels that they already had, and he was trying to direct them above their God, Artemis, which we'll see in a minute, to the ultimate God. And basically, Paul was directing them in that, uh, in that direction. And so that's the thing that we, the other thing I want to see is, say is this, that he's, Luke says this was God doing this, but next, secondly, he says this was extraordinary. This wasn't run of the mill. This wasn't the, this wasn't the norm, okay? Now, why do I say that? Because here's a couple things. We have friends who are Christians who believe that there's a second blessing, and they would take the first part where Paul's disciples received the Holy Spirit after they became Christians. That's why there's a debate whether they were Christians or not. The second thing is you see some pastors get on TV, preachers, televangelists, and they say, I'm going to send you a napkin, a handkerchief, and it's, you've touched the sick and they'll be healed. And you say, well, where do they get that idea? Well, they get it from here. Okay. So let me just say this. The Bible was written for us, but it wasn't written to us. And just because we have things that are written down in the book of Acts and it happened in, pa in the past in history doesn't mean that it will happen today or we should follow it today or it's how we should do things. Like there's a number of things they did in Acts that we don't do that with. Like for instance, they met every day. They sold their wealth to give to the poor. We don't do that. So we, we pick and choose all we want. So let's just be careful that we understand. Luke says this was extraordinary. And, and, and it was a specific culture that this was taking place. We see no other time in the New Testament where this was happening. It was right now, right then. And it was in this Ephesus culture that was very mystic. It was very spiritual. It was tied into those type of things. So we have to understand this was a, 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 an odd thing. All right. Um, <clears throat> what I'm actually saying is the Bible's written for us, not to us. This was not the normal operating procedure. This was out of the ordinary. It's extraordinary. That's what Paul's, uh, Luke is saying. All right. So Paul, in verses 8 through 10, and I'm not going to read those, essentially what's going on is Paul's going to the synagogue, and he's preaching in the synagogue like he has. We've seen this over and over. He's there for three months. Opposition rises up among the Jewish audience, they begin to make it uncomfortable. So Paul basically says, all right, I'm not going to preach and teach in the synagogue. I'm not going to reason in the synagogue anymore. I'm going to go to, and, you know, basically they go, he, he's forced to go to a lecture hall. And so they have this lecture hall, and Paul is going there probably after hours, after people are done working, so they can come after work. And he's not preaching at them. He's reasoning with them. He's answering questions. He's meeting with them. He's teaching them. He's bringing them along. He's helping them. And so Paul is doing all of that. <clears throat> okay. 
And, and it says, Luke says he had great success. Now jump down to verse 13. Some Jews went around driving out evil spirits. Uh, try, some, let me try that again. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you come out. <clears throat> Seven sons of Sceva, uh, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, an evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about. But who are you? <laughs> then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Now, I think this is absolutely hilarious. And I have a very sick sense of humor. But that being said, this is really weird, right? Um, so what's going on? We have a culture. And by the way, these were Jewish these seven Jewish men. So they, they had previously rejected the teachings of Paul, but they wanted to use Paul's name and exercise the power that they thought came from Paul. But it didn't come from Paul, it came from Jesus, right? And so it's very interesting. This demon who in, is in this man, he knows of Jesus and he knows of Paul, but he don't know you seven guys. And it says that he beat them up and somehow in the midst of stripped them naked and they were left naked and running. And this obviously, I mean, this caused quite a stir. This was crazy. And so there's this weird thing going on and we're gonna see that this had an effect. All right, verse 17. When this, that's the event where the guys, the seven sons, became known to the Jews and the Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total was 50,000 drachmas. In uh, this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. All right, so many of the people in Ephesus followed these dark arts, this magic. They worshiped Artemis. This was, this was common practice. This was the religion of Ephesus, okay? And so now through Paul's teaching, through these supernatural events, the healing, the, the, this demon, uh, you know, trying to cast out demons, these many things that are happening, this power struggle, many people began to put two and two together and they realized that the God of Paul was greater than any God they, they were following or worshiping. And so they began to grab their scrolls. Now the scrolls would have magic spells on them. And the idea was that when a magic spell was said, it was now powerless once it was said. But they, would bring the, they brought all their scrolls in and all their amulets and, and they burned them in the city square. And so this is a major thing. And it was very valuable. The, the value of this is, you know, the scholars are trying to figure out how much it was. It was a lot of money, okay? It was a lot of money and it was a lot of commerce. Notice that. The economy, this was an economic thing here and it's going to come back as we see in the text. It's going to come back. Um, so they brought them and they truly have repented. They've said, 
basically, ultimately, what they're saying is we're no longer going to follow these dark arts. We're no longer to follow Artemis. We're going to follow the God of Paul, the God of God and Lord of Lords. So they move from the prince of darkness to the prince of light, right? To the God who gives light, to the light of the world, right? And so they're, they're repenting, but it's a costly repentance because they're taking things that are value, valuable and they're burning them. They're destroying them, okay? Now, jump down to verse 23. About that time there arose a great disturbance about the way. Now, whenever you see that, it's only used a couple times in the book of Acts, this phrase, the way. Um, this is speaking of the Christian movement, the early Christian church. Um, Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the light. So the, his followers began to be called the people of the way, okay? And so that's what Luke is referring to. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines for Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together, along with the workers in related trades, and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. As you, and you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus in, and in practically the whole providence, province of Asia. I love this next statement. I just think it's an exact quote of what Paul said. Sometimes people who don't agree with you misquote you. He didn't, I don't think he misquoted. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. I think that's actually a direct quote from Paul. He says this, there is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also, and money, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself who is worshiped throughout the province of Asia and the world will be robbed of her divine majesty. So the temple of Artemis uh, was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And uh, Demetrius gathered together all the other tradesmen who basically facilitated the worship of Artemis. And basically what's going on here is they're losing money. This is an economy. Remember when they brought all the scrolls and that together? It was a lot of money. They realized that if these people are no longer worshiping Artemis and they're worshiping God or Jesus, that, then they're going to lose out. It's going to hit their pocketbook. Now, the, he says... I'm afraid that, the, that Artemis is going to get lost. In, no, he's not worried about that. He's worried about, you know, you know, make it a buck, basically, is what it comes down to. So he's going to stir all these people up. There's such a disturbance that he gathers a mob together to go after Paul and his friends. And so the town clerk hears of it. The town clerk heads off the mob, and basically has a dialogue. Now, when we use the word town clerk, it just seems really small and insignificant. Think more like a mayor. Think more like a city leader, somebody who's prominent, somebody who's respected. He comes out and basically does a couple of things. The first thing he does is this. He basically says, you guys have formed a mob. This is not a good thing. If Rome hears about this, they're going to come and they're going to stomp this mob out and you're not going to like it. That's a problem. We do not want Rome coming in here and quelling this mob. Number two, 
he basically says to the ringleader, he says to Demetrius, he says, Demetrius, uh, he asks him this question, have they robbed the temples? Well, no. Have they blasphemed the goddess? Well, no. Okay, then if that's the case, they haven't done anything, uh, you have one recourse. You can go to court if you want to go to court. But this mob thing is not a good thing. And so he basically says, you guys need to go home. So he disperses the mob and heads off this thing. Now, what I think is interesting, and we see this, we've seen this over and over in Acts, that when Roman officials kind of come into the play, and we saw this even with the crucifixion of Jesus with Pilate, many times with the religious disagreements that are going on under the surface, these Roman leaders don't want anything to do with it. They don't want to touch it. Now, they don't want to riot, and they don't want unrest, because if they have unrest, then they, they're going to have Rome come in, and they don't want that. But they also kind of say, you know what, I'm not going to get involved in this. And they find ways of not getting involved, which is good, because it gives Paul freedom to teach and preach under the Roman protection, okay? So that's just an observation. All right, so that's our passage. Wild, isn't it? We got people speaking in tongues and the Spirit of God coming. We got handkerchiefs that are healing people. We got guys trying to, who aren't Christians trying to cast out demons and demons saying, I know Paul and I know Jesus, but I don't know who you guys are. It's on, you know. And you got people coming out and burning, you know, you know sacred uh, scrolls with magical spells and other things in the city square. You got a mob that, it's just crazy. It's just, it's just a crazy chapter. So what difference does that make in our life? Interesting story, but what difference does it make? Let me give you two things that we want to focus on. The first one is this. Knowing Jesus is more than just invoking his name. The seven sons found that out pretty quickly, didn't they? They knew the name of Jesus. They invoked the name of Jesus. And the demon goes, yeah, I know Jesus. And I know Paul, but I don't know you. And uh, by the way, James tells us in James' epistle, he says the demons believe in Jesus and they shudder, but they don't trust him. They, they, they don't follow him. He's not their leader. Now, here's, here's the thing. There's many people who believe in the power, the spiritual power of the name. But they, and, and some even invoke it, and that's what we saw here. But I believe that there's too many people invoke the name of Jesus without knowing who Jesus is. They, they say the name of Jesus. They use the name of Jesus. They may even pray, but they don't know Jesus. You know some friends. You, you may be with them during this time of the year. And you gather around the table. Maybe you offer a prayer. But you know there are people who, who, are, who are basically claiming the name of Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. Their life doesn't show any. We, we never know a person's heart, but um, they, they may invoke the name of Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. Uh, Jesus spoke about this in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 7, he says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say, not some, not a few, but many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive out demons in your name? 
perform, and perform many miracles in your name. And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. You can know about Jesus and still not know Jesus. I believe there's a lot of people that are in that boat. They know about Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. They're the kinds of people, when you start talking about your relationship with Jesus Christ and how you're committed to him and how you want your life to reflect him and how you're basically saying no maybe to the way you used to live, they look at you and say, what's wrong with you? Are you drinking too much Jesus juice? What's going on with you? And you, it's hard for you to explain because you say, well, I have a relationship and he's the most important relationship in my life. And they don't get that. See, they know Jesus in name, but they don't know Jesus in relationship, which is totally different. And, and, and that's really important that we understand this. How many people do you know who practice religion but have no relationship with Jesus Christ? And as I said before, the, demon, the demons know a lot of theology. They probably know more theology than most of us in this room. And they believe it and they shudder, but they reject it. They reject it. Now, let me give you an example. I, I want to make a point, and then I want to try to prove it. You can, you can believe a truth and still deny it. Now, what do I mean by that? Have you ever been in, in a debate with somebody, and you think you're right, and the other person thinks they're right, and then you find evidence that you're wrong and they're right? You ever do that? And do you go to that person and say, oh, you know what, we were arguing about this, and I just found information that you were right and I was wrong, and I just wanted to tell you, you were right, I was wrong. Most of us would never do that. I'm never going to admit it. I'm going to go to my grave. I'll never admit I'm wrong. No, we know that they're right, but we'll never admit it. Here's the sad truth. There are people today who are headed to a Christless eternity. They know about Jesus, and he, they know he's the only way, but they will not bow their knees to him. They're like the people when Jesus walked this earth and he said, hey, come follow me, and they said, sounds like a good idea, but I've got a few other appointments. And Jesus let the dead bury the dead. You're either with me or you're not. You can know the truth and still not believe it. Okay, that's the warning. You know, the demons are basically saying, we know Paul, we know Jesus, but we don't know you. You may know the name, but you don't know him. Do you know him as Savior? Do you know him as Lord? Is he Lord of your life? First thing we need to take from this. Second thing is this. Knowing Jesus leaves no room for competing idols or gods. The people took their idols and they brought them to a pile and they burned them to the ground. They repented. It was a costly thing for everyone because Luke is making a point. This was a costly change in their life. They had to do a, a, a radical 180. They had to stop worshiping the gods, which they probably had worshiped from when they were very, very young, and they had to stop and turn and begin to follow this new God of Paul, this God of God and Lord of Lords named Jesus Christ. 
and they basically took everything in the house that was tied to this other God, that was integrated into their lives, and they brought it to the town square, and they burned it to the ground. It was a radical change and a radical direction. When Jesus comes into your life, he doesn't come in to say, let's move this picture from this wall to this wall. Let's move this couch over here. It looks better. When Jesus comes into your life, into your heart, he comes in to do not just a a simple change. He is going to renovate the whole thing, room after room after room. He's not coming in to, cha- to just add a few decorating ideas. He's coming to gut it out and rebuild it. That's the process we call sanctification. Room by room. Now think of your life as a house. You're going to have people over in the next few weeks. And um, there are certain rooms that you have clean or you're cleaning, Right? Living room's got to be clean. Dining room's got to be clean. Bathroom's got to be clean. Kitchen, keep it clean. All right, all the other junk, we're going to hide behind the doors of different rooms, right? And we do not want our guests going there, right? We, we don't want that. There's some rooms that we don't want them to go in and see. We understand that, right? You do the same thing... <laughs> You do the same thing to God. We, we say, oh, Jesus, come on into my living room. Hey, come on into the kitchen. Hey, come on into the, you know, the living room. Let's sit down. And Jesus says, no, let's go into this closet. No, don't go in there. <laughs> don't go in there. He says, no, I think we ought to go in there. Hey, isn't that the, the door to your cellar? Let's go down there and see what's there. No, Jesus. I'd be embarrassed if we were to go down there. No, we need to go down there. No, I don't want to go down there. Uh, you know, so there's a little booklet. It's called uh, My Heart, Christ's Home. You ought to read that. It's just a little booklet. And basically, it's, it's basically this argument, this debate that we have with Jesus where he says, okay, we're going to deal with these issues. We're going to go from room to room, and we're gonna, you're going to open the door, and we're going we're gonna to work on renovating rebuilding we're going to change that room here's the point some of you are battling Jesus over his renovation plans for your life you're trying to hide some of the rooms but Jesus will have none of it he's going to go to that room he's going to grow to that area of your life whether you like it or not he's going to do it here's here's the thing let's get a little more deep here If you want to live an abundant life, you're going to have to get rid of all your idols no matter the cost. Now, you may say, I don't think I have idols. I mean, I've looked at the shelves, and I have elf on a shelf, but I don't think I have have idols on a shelf, okay? And you you say, but I don't have an idol. Okay, well, let's, let's talk about what an idol is. An idol is anything that takes the place of God in your life. Oftentimes, these idols provide for you purpose, meaning, security, all those different things, right? That's what idols do. By the way, these idols, and we're going to talk about some specific idols, 
These idols are absolutely destroying you and they're destroying your family and they're destroying people across America and around the world because there's so many people that are putting their faith in these idols and these idols are failing every single day. They're destroying lives and yet people still trust them. Now, what are the idols in your life? An idol is anything, usually it's a good thing that we make a God thing. It's something that is a good thing to have in our life, but we make it an ultimate, essential, I can't live without it thing. We make it a God thing. So what are some of those idols? Um, Let me give you a few. The approval idol. This is the idol that says, if this person will affirm and approve me, then I will feel good in my life. And the more they affirm me, the better I feel. And the less they affirm me, the more my life goes and I'm a mess. I just need that affirmation. I've got to have it. Instead of looking to God who says, you're my son, you're my daughter, in whom I'm well pleased. Instead of acknowledging that he sent his son for you and and, and your affirmation comes at that act where Jesus gives his life for you, the ultimate act, greater love is than this, than he would lay down his life, brother would lay down his life for his friend. And that's exactly what Jesus says. We are affirmed by that instead of doing that. We have to have other people. Now again, having affirmation in your life is an important thing. But if it becomes an ultimate thing, When you don't get the affirmation, what do you do? Your life falls apart. Let me give you another one, dependence. Um, The dependence idol. This person or this thing will protect me and take care of me. Um, I'll have enough money that I won't have to need anything and I'll never be be in need. Or uh, this person, if I have this person in my life, they will give me significance and they they will protect me and they will watch over me. But what happens when something happens to them? What do I do now? Or the independence idol. Um, I can take care of myself and I don't need to care about anyone else. I, can t- I, I just need to take care of myself. I'm gonna look after number one. And you can live that way for a while, but there's going to come times in your life where you need help. And you're gonna be too proud to ask for help and you're gonna feel you're, you're all alone. Maybe some of you feel that way right now. You feel all alone because you have this independent, this, this need to be independent. It's very American. It's very, there's a lot of lonely Americans out there that are feeling like they're hitting their, their mark. They're living for this independent idol. And it's a lonely way to live. The success idol. The idol that says, I'm successful. I'm good at sports. I'm good at music. I'm good at, in the performing arts. I'm good at business. I'm good at this. I, I have accolades. I have trophies. I have all these people who know how smart I am, how good looking I am, how whatever I am. I am very, very successful. But what happens when you're not? What happens when you lose your beauty? What happens when there's other people that are now more successful to you than you? What happens when your accomplishments, which seemed so great at one point, now seem to fade? What do you do now? How about the control idol? Some of you have that. I'm gonna control everything for my life and everyone around me. I'm going to be in control. I don't want any, and then all of a sudden what happens is you, you have COVID and you realize I have no control over things that I used to have control over. None. What am I gonna do? 
And the answer is you really never were in control. You thought you were, but you weren't. How about the relationship idol? We live in America, and America has this dream and TV shows to back it up to say there's the perfect person out there. You just need to write, meet the right bachelor or bachelorette, and when you meet them, you'll be in bliss for the rest of your lives. And the rest of us who are married and maybe married for 10, 15, 20, or 30 years, we say good luck with that one. Because <laughs> that's not the way real relationships work. There's ups and there's downs, and there's ups and there's downs. One day you say, I don't know if I could love you more, and there's other days you say, I don't know if I love you at all. <sighs> right? And here's the thing. You get to that low point in a relationship, and you say, here's the problem. I married the wrong person, but over there in that field is a person who's perfect. If I go to be with them, I will be happy. And there's no poop in their field. <laughs> there's a lot here. Let me, can I just say to you, there's poop over there. You just can't see it yet. It's there. If you ask relationships to be it for you, you're in big trouble. How about the family idol? We're all, you know, hopefully many of us are going to get together in the next few weeks with family. And you bring these babies home from the hospital. And they are so cute and so beautiful and so innocent and harmless. And then they grow up and they start saying no and they're belligerent and they're mean-spirited and they say things like, I hate you, and then they become teenagers. And you go, what is wrong with these kids? They're supposed to love me and they don't anymore. And I've done so much for them. And you as parents have given them the lecture. You do not know how many sacrifices I've made for you. And the kids yawn and go, are we done? <laughs> Let me give you one more. The idol of health. Some of you want to live a healthy life. You exercise regularly. You uh, eat right. You do all, you know, you don't smoke. You don't drink. You don't do drugs. You've tried to live a good life and you, 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 you compare, you, you, it's hard not to, you compare yourselves to others and you go, man, I am knocking it out of the park. And then you go in to the doctor's office and he says, I think I see a spot, I think it's cancer. And you go, that cannot be. And your life begins to die. Because you say, I've done everything right, that's not fair. And here's what your idols do. Your idols make promises. They say, you come after us and we'll give you what you need. And then you get there and you go, I don't know if you're really giving me what you promised. And then when they start to fail you because they can't hold the weight of your life, you will, your life will sink and you'll feel like my life is dying right before my eyes. And I know how to fix it. Remember when I said earlier, I said, you have friends and neighbors and people in this room and people watching right now, and you, you are 
these idols are killing you because you're putting all your trust and all your faith in these things. And when they begin to die because you put the weight of your life on them, because Jesus says, if you build on a foundation that is not solid, if you don't build your life on me, the storms are going to come and they're going to destroy you. Your idols will fall and they will not just fall, they will condemn you in the process of falling. They will mock you. They will say, you thought you were healthy. You're not healthy. Look, you have cancer. But if your idol is Jesus Christ, if you burn your idol in the city square, if you throw your idol in the city square and you look to Jesus and you say, Jesus, even though this body may break down and get older and get cancer, you've promised that I will overcome this world because you overcame it and I will have life eternal with a new resurrected body. I'm playing a longer game. I'm playing a bigger game. Yes, I want to live a healthy life, but I realize that we're all in a process of dying and that's okay. Again, we make a good thing a God thing and when we do that, we've created an idol. It's not something that sits on a shelf. It's something. And here's the second thing I want to say about idols. Idols have a way of creeping back out of the fire. They don't remain dead. They'll come back. And you think, you, I thought I killed you. I thought I moved past you. And then all of a sudden it reeks its head in your life because it's got tentacles and it wants to come back. That's why it's so critical what these people did. They brought the idols out of their house. They didn't say, well, I will live with them for a while. They burned them. They said, we're turning our back on these idols and we're turning to Jesus. The only one who can set us free, the only one who can give us hope, the only one who can give us purpose and meaning in our lives, the only one that can tell us that our life matters and it has value, the only one that says, I, I love you this much. So what's the one thing in your life that if you lose it, your first thought would be, my life's over. Think of the best relationship you have with a person and you say, if I lost them, I don't know what I would do. That's, that's a normal thing. But if you have Jesus, you say, but that's not it. That's a deep, 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 deep hurt. But it's not the end. What is it that if it was taken away, your life would begin to be over. Remember I said there's a whole bunch of people around you and in this room and on that are, their idols are killing them. They don't have a purpose to live. They don't feel any security in this world. They don't feel like their life has meaning or purpose. And they don't feel loved. It's because they've never turned to the one, the only one, who can give them the love they need, who can give them the purpose they need, who can give them eternity, who can give them security. He's the only one. So what is it if you, if you're, if you lose it, immediately your, your, your life is filled with fear. That's probably your idol. Throw it in the fire, kill it, give your life to Jesus, and allow him to fill those needs that only he can fill.
Stand with me, let's pray. Father, we need your help because without your help, we are powerless. Father, I pray that people would know Jesus not in name only, but in relationship and in power. I pray, Father, that the Spirit of God would help to reveal the idols we have allowed to grow up in our lives, that we would root them out, that we would throw them into fire and burn them, that we would shift our our weight off of our idols and back to you. And thank you, Father, that you will never let us down. You will never condemn us. Though our idols will mock us and make fun of us for trusting them, you never will. In fact, you will always receive us with open arms. So, Father, as we repent of our idols, may we run into your arms and find purpose and meaning and security for we desperately need it. And we pray it in the awesome, powerful name above all names, Jesus Christ.